Hey everyone, it's Dan. Welcome to the Orange Brown Talk podcast. Jim Brown passed away on Thursday night at the age of 87 at his home in Los Angeles. Jim Brown leaves a complicated legacy behind. Obviously, there's the football where he is the greatest Cleveland Brown of all time. And arguably, and personally for me, I would remove the word arguably, but we'll say it here, arguably the greatest running back in the history of the NFL. Jim Brown also has a complicated legacy away from the football field. Uh, He was an activist, of course. He also has a long history of accusations of violence against women. It's all part of the legacy of Jim Brown, and it's why it's so difficult to talk about, and it's why what you're going to hear on the Orange and Brown Talk podcast is some different voices, people who got to know Jim Brown, did work on Jim Brown, really dug in uh, to his legacy as a football player and as a human being. First up is going to be Dave Zirin. His book is called Jim Brown, Last Man Standing. I'm going to put a link to it in the description of the podcast for you to order that on Amazon. And I talked to Dave about all aspects of Jim Brown because I'm not a Jim Brown expert. I started on the Browns beat full-time in 2016. I didn't get a chance to spend time with Jim Brown. I didn't get a chance to have a lot of conversations with Jim Brown. Now, I did get to meet him, and uh, just as everyone else who meets him, it's like, oh my God, I just met Jim Brown. I can't believe it. If you grew up loving football, meeting him was incredible. And that's that went for me, that went for other members of the media, and that went for players who were far too young to ever remember Jim Brown. But it mattered because that's who he was as a football player. I also did get an opportunity to sit in a team meeting once. I was invited when they were working on some social justice initiatives uh, back in 2018. I got to sit in on a meeting and Jim Brown spoke uh, during that meeting as, as the organization laid out for players how they could best take steps uh, and, and affect change, which is something, of course, that Jim Brown tried to do. But again, I don't know Jim like Dave Zirin got to know Jim. I don't know Jim how, how some other people got to know Jim. So on the Orange and Brown Talk podcast, we're, you know I've reached out to some people and we're just going to run some interviews with them about Jim and and his legacy and who he was as a player, who he was as a person, and just trying to define him here as uh, as we remember the greatest Cleveland Brown of all time. I do want to mention there is some language at the end of the interview as well. If you have kids in the car or are listening with kids, uh, just so you are aware of that. So we'll take a break. And on the other side, my conversation with Dave Zirin. All right, welcome back to the Orange and Brown Talk podcast. We now welcome on Dave Zirin. He wrote a book called Jim Brown, Last Man Standing. Uh, Dave, I appreciate you taking the time to uh, to talk to us here. Well, this is the time to do it for sure. So thanks for having me on. Okay, I'm going to ask you a big open-ended question here. And I promise you they are not all this open-ended, but uh, we're just going to start here. When I say the name Jim Brown, what what does that mean to you? Wow. Um, <laughs> a, a cascading amount of thoughts. I guess the, the first thing that I think about, honestly, are broad canvases. My first thoughts are half an inch wide, half an inch deep and a thousand feet wide. 
So I think of these canvases that I associate very strongly with Jim Brown's assertion of his own masculinity, which is a common feature throughout his entire life. That I am a man, I will not be treated as anything less than a man. That was, in a lot of ways, his mantra. And he expressed that on these incredibly hyper-masculine canvases. Uh, the world of football, the world of black exploitation cinema, the world of uh, the black economic power movement of the late 60s and early 70s. You know, that, that was a world that you had to have some sharp elbows to, to get through and be respected. And Jim Brown certainly had that. Uh, the world working in gangs is also of obviously hyper-masculinist in so many ways. Like you have to prove yourself uh, to people who've, you know, been there and back in a lot of cases. Uh, working inside the prisons, which he did uh, with a mayor I can. I mean, again, like hyper masculinist, you know, although they also did a lot of work in women's prisons as well, but that's no picnic either. And then, but then there, there's that other canvas as well, which links to this issue of manhood and masculinity, and I will not be treated as less than a man. And that's his uh, constant, the constant accusations of violence against women, which took place I mean, as far as public accusations, we're talking about spanning 35 years of his life at different times. So, I mean, it, and it's impossible to, to if you're if you're going to take the measure of Jim Brown, the football player, that's one thing. But if you're going to take a measure of a life, that has to be a part of it as well. For okay. one simple reason is that I mean, I'll say this: I think Jim Brown was a brilliant person. You know, I met him, I spoke to him, a brilliant person, and the fact that he had all of this swirling around him actually i would argue prevented his ideas from reaching their true potential because it made him in some circles persona non grata that's interesting we're we're going to obviously touch on that stuff but let's start on the sports side yes um jim brown the runner i mean when you watch him <laughs> run the when you watch him run the football there's so many ways to describe it. How would you describe Jim Brown as a runner? Uh, I would first describe him as uh, like the movie, the Terminator, like somebody sent from the future to punish out of shape linebackers. I mean, the thing about Jim Brown that's so incredible as a runner to me is the fact that at a time where people didn't exist like this, he was, you know, 6'2", 6'3", 230 pounds, and ran a sub 4'5". And this was in the era before, you know, track shoes and spongy turfs, too. You know, so, so we're talking about serious track speed. You know, somebody who was a decathlete and was begged to train for the 1956 Olympics and did not. Uh, we're talking about somebody who was, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going to go off the runner question. Is that okay? That That's fine. Take it wherever you want. Look, this is where I want to take it. In Jim Brown, we have, in my opinion, the greatest athlete of the 20th century. Now, I asked Jim Brown about this, and he disagreed. He said Jim Thorpe was the greatest athlete of the 20th century. And then when I asked him, okay, what about team sports? He said, no, it's about championships. So Bill Russell is the greatest athlete of the 20th century. And of course he and Bill Russell are longtime friends. I'm sure that influenced that answer. Uh, but to me, it's Jim Brown because there's nobody else who's in the conversation as the greatest ever in two different team sports. We're of course talking about football and lacrosse. 
He also dropped 50 points in a Syracuse basketball game, but then quit the team because he was being treated like less of a man because they had a quota of the number of black players they would allow on the court. Uh, He really was offered a contract to train to fight for the heavyweight boxing championship. Uh, I mean, he he really did come in fifth in a NCAA decathlon that he did not train for. I mean, we're, we're talking about somebody, you know, what it reminds me of is back in the day when I used to go to the ballpark early to watch Barry Bonds hit. And you were watching somebody who the sport was almost like a plaything in their hands, as opposed to this Titanic challenge that has conquered, you know, reams of people. And, you know, that, 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 that's Jim Brown athletically. I mean, the best of the best of the best. And I, 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 th- I think this position is unassailable because he, I mean, you just have to watch the tape. And in a weird way, it's like we're talking about Paul Bunyan. You know, it's like tall tales and legends of Jim Brown. Uh, you know, there's no real good lacrosse footage, for example. Um, but, you know, there were no cameras worrying when he, when he did the decathlete, the decathlon uh, competition. Um, but what we do have of him playing football, I think, tells the story all by itself. And it's why there's never been a runner statistically who can measure up to Jim Brown. His legacy stands alone. And you know the number that people are most impressed with? I bet you do. The number people are most impressed with is zero. The number of games missed in his career. Right. Never never missed a game in those nine seasons. It, you mentioned the video that's available of him. And, and last night I actually found um, it was Maryland versus Syracuse. And you, you've instantly noticed Jim Brown wearing number 44. And he kicks. He returns. Uh, he catches a pass. I, I mean everything he does in that game and you know it it actually was kind of a a monumental upset at the time when Syracuse won that game there isn't as much video out there of of Jim Brown as as I would like but when you find things like that um it's it's pretty incredible to watch yeah it answers the question I I go back to Barry Bonds hitting I'll say Serena Williams when she was at her absolute best I mean you feel like you're watching somebody who's toying with this sport that has confounded masses upon masses of people. Um, no, he, he's absolutely amazing. And that not missing a game part of this, you know, he was involved in 60% of the snaps for the Cleveland Browns. That's remarkable. And of course, players back then were not as, you know, strong, fast trained as they are right now, but it was a time where a good clothesline or an eye gouge, you know, a short punch to the nuts at the bottom of a pile, all of that was on the table. So for him to stay healthy in the context of people stepping on his ankles in cleats is is pretty remarkable. And by the way, it also wasn't a passing league. It yes. was it was a league where, you know, you went big on big a lot and it wasn't spread out. There wasn't a lot of room to run all the time. No, that, that's very true. And that's why Jim Brown, I think, punished so many linebackers because it was tough to get around them when they would all load up in the box, but he could go through them just fine. So you mentioned the lacrosse, and I do want to touch on that real quickly because I can't, I can't have somebody mention lacrosse and not ask about it. Uh, we know that Jim Brown was thought of as, I mean, you mentioned it, could have been the greatest lacrosse player in, in history. I mean, just how good was some, he? Some say he was. 
the greatest lacrosse player in history, his legendary lacrosse coach at Syracuse. And we're talking about Syracuse here, which is like talking about the Yankees with baseball. Uh, Syracuse coach, the, 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 his legendary coach, uh, Coach uh, Simmons, I believe. Um, I will do a double check on that. Um, but his coach said at his own Hall of Fame ceremony that the greatest player he ever saw uh, was, in fact, Jim Brown. And th- that, to me, is, it says something in and of itself. So the, qu- the question, of course, is, is always, and again, this goes back to how complicated of a, of a person Jim Brown was. Why ultimately do you believe he decided to retire after nine seasons? I mean, we know why Jim right. Brown retired. It, it, and it's, uh, it's so powerful. It would, again, it's like the movie about Jim Brown's life uh, the biopic about his life, this would be a great scene. It's just uh, the other parts of his personal life have prevented us, I think, from really ingesting what he did in the popular culture. I really do think it's been a block to this being like one of those stories that everybody knows. I mean, he's on the set of The Dirty Dozen, uh, you know, dressed up like, you know, like he's a, a revolutionary. You know, uh, Time Magazine called him on the set. He said that they said he looked like... Uh, uh, che Guevara, you know, and, and how he walked around and how he dressed. And he was being fined, I think, $5 a day by Art Modell because he was missing training camp because there were weather problems on the European set. $5 a day. And Jim Brown saw that as such an affront, as he said, here's that word again, to his manhood. Um, you know, I, I just keep stressing that because you could say, wow, that's an affront to me as a human being. That's an affront to me as an athlete. You know, that's an affront to me as a proud black man. But he always took it to manhood. He said, that is an affront to my manhood. So he made a full speech and announced his retirement before his uh, 30th birthday. And, you know, this has changed in recent years as players have become more conscious about concussions. But there used to be an expression in the uh, NFL Players Association where people would say that Jim Brown and Barry Sanders were the only people to walk and not limp away from the game of football. So he was given that respect, too, that he didn't let the game destroy him physically the way it destroyed so many others, although he did have certainly his aches and pains as life uh, wore on. So talking about Jim Brown, the the football player, as, as you've kind of mentioned, is really shortchanging who he was. And, and I want to start here uh, by reading something you tweeted uh, on Saturday uh, when you, you wrote headlines calling Jim Brown a civil rights icon. Ignore that Brown was a critic of King's CRM for his entire life. He loved MLK, but thought the whole CRM was wrong tactically and politically. Brown's last public feud was with John Lewis, actually insulting to Brown to obscure this. Explain kind of what you were getting at. With, yeah, with absolutely. Point. I think... History is sometimes told very simplistically. Uh, big shock. What, 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 what a profound statement. Sorry, I realize how utterly pretentious that sounded. Um, but but the, the basics are we're taught history like it's a McDonald's Happy Meal. And if you were black and you were in the 1950s and 60s and you said anything about racism, then you were a civil rights icon and you must have been a part of the civil rights movement. When in reality... 
there were massive splits and massive debates about politics and strategy and tactics and political candidates. I mean, it, it was, I mean, and, and it, people read books like Parting the Waters by Taylor Branch. I mean, it, it was really incredible. And it doesn't give enough credit to the people involved, real human beings with real questions and disagreements trying to figure out the way forward. And in this stew of debate and discussion and, 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 and activism, uh, Jim Brown stood against the tactics of the civil rights movement. He believed that things like the March on Washington were, were, were a joke. And he believed that the fight for integration was flawed in and of itself because why would you want to integrate with a racist society? Why would you want to integrate with people who don't want you? And these ideas were not like, oh my goodness. These were the ideas in the 1950s of Malcolm X. These were the ideas of Muhammad Ali a few years after that. These were the ideas of the Nation of Islam, the, a group that Jim Brown defended uh, in the pages of, I believe, the Cleveland Plain Dealer, um, where he had a column. Um, and I have it in my book where, where he wrote it, but he wrote it in one of the Cleveland papers, A Defense of the Nation of Islam, as part of his regular column, which is, by the way, an incredible incredible read unto itself um, to go back and read those. But th this is the Jim Brown that they're presenting to us that, I mean, I'm sorry to call out a specific thing. Oh, I won't just mainstream papers, New York times, you know, whatever. It's like pushing forward civil rights icon, civil rights icon. And it's actually insulting because uh, to Jim Brown, because that, that just was not what he thought was an effective tactic at all. And he liked King personally. And, you know, he was one of the few people who was invited to Dr. King's funeral. You know, I mean, those, I mean, when I say one of the few, I just mean that you had U.S. senators standing outside the building where Dr. King was laid to rest because they couldn't get in. Uh, and Jim Brown was there with the family. So it's very complicated. Like he, he had this affection for King, but... Those were not his politics. And he was, he and John Lewis were going at each other after Donald Trump was elected. Because when, when John Lewis said, when Representative Lewis said that he uh, did not see Trump as a legitimate president, I believe was what it was. And Jim Brown went on CNN uh, to say, John Lewis might like those parades, but I never had any use for them. And what's interesting is you go back to the 1950s and early 60s, he was calling those marches parades. Uh, so th this, the, those are his politics. You know, you can choose to agree with them or disagree with them, but you know the facts are are what they are. So that, that that's why it sort of rubbed me the wrong way. The whole civil rights icon part of it, because that's not something the civil rights movement would want to fix to, to Jim Brown, and that's not something Jim Brown would want to fix to himself. How much credit do you think Jim Brown deserves for? Um, a, a lot of the player activism that we've seen. I, I know LeBron James on Instagram yesterday pointed to Jim Brown as a reason that he's able to be outspoken. The, how, how much credit do you think Jim deserves for kind of where players are now? Well, the question is like, what groundwork did Jim Brown lay, which led to the revolt of the black athlete, which took place after uh, Jim Brown's retirement uh, in the late 60s and early 70s, which is credited broadly through the person of Kurt Flood 
with cracking open uh, free agency and creating the kinds of monies that you see today. I mean, the highest paid player in 1975, I mean, it's unreal compared to now what players make. I mean, fans know that. People listening to this podcast know that. But I don't think people realize that that was cracked open under great resistance from ownership and from commissioners and all the sports and was really broken through as a reverberation of the black athletes revolt. And you don't really have a black athletes revolt without Jim Brown. So it's about how important we view trailblazing to be in this world. You know, someone's got to be the first. And if it was easy, everyone would do it. So what was Jim Brown the first to do? He was the first athlete to have an agent. He was the first, certainly black athlete, to ever be able to get uh, his coach fired. And in this case, we're talking about the legendary Paul Brown, the guy the franchise is named after. Uh, and Jim, But Jim Brown was able to do that. Jim Brown was able to get players who were released, re-signed by the team by going to the front office and just saying, no, he doesn't go. I mean, Jim Brown was called the locker room lawyer very derisively. And so in a time, and Jim Brown was always anti-union, by the way, <laughs> but, but this was a time where the union largely did not exist. And what, so, the, so and maybe if there was a stronger union in the 1950s, we'd be having an entirely different dis- discussion, but it really forged Jim Brown's ideas about about what it um, about about the right way forward uh, towards some form of liberation or emancipation or progress, and so the template that he laid down is flex your star power, flex your value, flex your intelligence, make them treat you like a man. There's that word again, and those are his words. And I, I really do think that as a reverberation, that broke through. It broke through in a way that Jackie Robinson, frankly, did not. That was different. Jim Brown represented something much more assertive and much more in control. I mean, people forget this, but, you know, Jackie Robinson was traded to the damn Giants, the team he despised at the end of his career and retired rather than wear a Giants jersey. You know, Jim Brown wasn't going to go out like that, plain and simple. How complicated do you believe Brown's legacy as an activist is? Um, I, I want to get into some of his his other issues as well, but just as an activist, yeah, I mean, you used the word complicated in regards to MLK earlier. Is his legacy as an activist in, as What's a whole confusing? complicated? I, I think there's a common thread that runs through it all, but, but it's confusing for a lot of people because he endorsed Richard Nixon in 1968, you know, and he also spoke at Huey Newton's funeral. Um, he was uh, a, a big supporter of Donald Trump, and he also was somebody who fought to keep Stan Tookie Williams, the founder of the Crips, uh, alive on death row. And he was doing this. I interviewed him about this at the time. He was in his 70s fighting for Stan Tookie Williams, you know, the sort of person who Don, Donald Trump would have had executed personally uh, if given the chance. So, you know, it, it's not a legacy that ends itself to an easy read. Like, oh, he was a right winger. He was a liberal. He was, you know, I mean, what he was for, uh, and this I do think is controversial, was not a perspective of movements or struggle. 
it's pretty much you get like like politics is a dirty business and you get out of it what you can. I really think he learned that doing the black economics union work uh, in Cleveland, uh, in particular after the the riots that and rebellion that took place after the killing of Martin Luther King. And there were several others in Cleveland in that time. Um, you know, and he worked with the Black Economic Union to bring seed money to communities to start small businesses. And it really did get throttled uh, by, by the police, by banks, by you know, the inability to secure capital. And I think he came out of that much more calloused about uh, the United States, um, or at the very least, not about the United States, that, that's not quite right about how can black people progress in the context of a racist society? And he came to the conclusion that you pretty much just, you have to have ownership and you have to not be dependent on those very politicians. And I don't know, sometimes that can lend itself to a very libertarian view, a very right-wing view. And sometimes it can lend itself to a very nationalist view where you would find an attraction to Richard Nixon who was making speeches about black power, but did it within the context of black economic empowerment, not in the context of anything revolutionary. And Jim Brown was very attracted to that form of black power. Uh, and he was also you know, very attracted to Donald Trump for a similar, you know, a similar reason, oddly enough. And that similar reason, uh, is this idea that, you know, that, that, that politics is necessarily a fetter on the black community. And here's Donald Trump saying, burn it all down. And I think that was enough for Jim Brown. I also think he was very hurt by being repeatedly, uh, uh, that there was no interest in the Obama administration in engaging with Jim Brown. I think that, that stung more than a little. Yeah, yeah, that, that's all very controversial, like supporting doing a meeting with Donald Trump and Kanye West in the as your last political act. Yeah, that's going to leave a, a certain imprint in how people think about you. Yeah. And the, and the point about the Obama administration, you know, obviously on a smaller scale, the Browns also he was estranged from the Browns for a little while because he I think there were times when he felt insulted that, that they didn't want to maybe involve him or include him. Um, as, as part of the organization. Now, uh, obviously, what a lot of people have talked about is Jim Brown's uh, accusations of violence against women. It's you you mentioned it off the top. It's there's a long history of it. Um, how do you I don't know if you ever spoke to him about it. I, I guess how do you the way I worded the question was, how do you square those? I don't know if that's a great way to word it, but no, I, mean, I guess how do you how do you view those? I don't think you can. I mean, I mean, as a society, I think we're trying to reckon broadly with what it means to have incredibly talented men, and it's almost exclusively men, uh, do horrible things in their personal life or, you know, leverage the fact that they are people of great fame and renown to do things that today we would really deem um, unacceptable in any way, shape or form. Like you feel the liberty uh, to exert domination over women. And in the 1950s, and these women come forward, it's not going to be taken very seriously by the courts, by the police. And Jim Brown, I would argue, benefited from that for for many, many, many years.
And uh, like I said, accusations that spanned the course of 35 years and that the pattern was always the same. It was women, exclusively black women from my own research, or I should say women of color, um, come forward. They say he did this to me. They fill out police reports and then they walk away from the case. So I don't really know where that leaves us. You know, what am I gonna do? Say everything Jim Brown did is, is completely um, eradicated because of these accusations and then I'm gonna close my computer and listen to some Michael Jackson or listen to some Miles Davis. I mean, we're all wrestling with, I think the, the profound hypocrisies in our own consumption relative to our values. And so, so th th these are huge questions. And, you know, I think it was, it's, it's a damn shame that Jim Brown didn't reckon with this more seriously in the last years of his life, but it's not dissimilar from Donald Trump. And I really do think that's a, a point of connection between them, which is deny, deny, deny. I was famous. I did nothing wrong. Remember when, when Trump was in, 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 in the trial with uh, E. Jean Carroll, who accused him of rape, and this, this all just happened. In his deposition, he said something to the effect of, famous people uh, have been doing this forever, and that's good and bad, or for better or worse, or something like that, where he left it ambiguous that is it the worst thing in the world that famous men get to exert their will over women and exert their will violently over women. And it's, uh, you know, I, it's utterly contemptible and it's part of Jim Brown's history. And I don't know what good it does to deny it um, or to be offended when it's brought up because it's important. Because I really do think it's linked to this, this I think, very false way forward of asserting this, you know, mighty sense of manhood as a method for a more just society. I think it just reproduces all sorts of uh, terrible problems and injustices and inequalities that, that plague us today. I think it actually makes it worse. So, and it's a very common threat of politics in this country. So that, that, that's the lesson I would draw out of it. The, the, and, and that's why I think it's important that it be part of the discussion. So what were your conversations with Jim Brown like? Deeply philosophical. And that's because that's all he wanted to talk about. Like, like we, it, I mean, we're just talking about, I spent five days, um, maybe a little more than that, uh, sleeping under his pool um, in the West Hollywood Hills. And he, he, you know, he slept a lot. He is older, of course, played golf. Uh, and then there would be times in the day where he would feel like talking to me and I would, and we would sit by his pool and he would just talk. And I got amazing stuff, like from his perspective now, looking at things like the Ali summit in 1967 or you know, him telling me everything about what it was like that one night in Miami when he spent uh, the evening with Malcolm X, Muhammad Ali, and Sam Cooke, and they spent all night up talking, you know, and that later became a, a, a play and a movie that just came out called One Night in Miami, which is really good. 
and uh you know but but it that that was the that you know that 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 was the discussion like i was able to get a lot of history from him i was able to get um like his philosophical thoughts about the state of the world um and i would ask him questions about things like violence against women and he would just shake his head and he would be like violence against women. i can't believe i still have to talk about this shit was really his response like he just couldn't believe it and uh believe me i and I, I didn't like word it rudely by any respect like when i was there uh there was a lot of discussion in the news about ray rice and the video of him uh punching his then fiance his then fiance uh janae parker um and someone wrote a big column perhaps in your paper that the ray rice case should make us reject Jim Brown as a member of the of the Cleveland Browns community. Like if we're going to be upset about and then it was a whole excavation of his history. I mean, Jim Brown had that in his hand uh, printed out from the computer. And he said to me, Can you believe this shit? So obviously, I'm going to ask him, like, what do you have to say about it? And that that's how that discussion even started. And I still didn't get a lot out of him. What I got is in the book people can check it out but um it i swear you know the, it's not to excuse it but to explain it but like men who came through that middle part of the 20th century did a lot of awful shit and men do a lot of awful shit now but the difference is then there wasn't even the pretense of sanction so that has to be part of the story Okay, D Dave, you've been super generous with your time here. Um, I'm going to wrap this up by asking you again a another very open-ended question and this uh -oh. is sort of this is sort of what we've been getting at throughout this whole interview, but just to sum it up here, who in your mind ultimately was Jim Brown? Can someone be both a dragon and a dragon slayer? Is it possible to be both? If it is, then I give you Jim Brown. The book is Jim Brown, Last Man Standing. Uh, you can get that on Amazon. I'll put a link to it in the description of the podcast. Uh, Dave Zirin wrote it. Um, so if you are a Browns fan, if you want to know more about Jim Brown and his complicated legacy that we just discussed here, um, definitely check that book out. Dave, again, I mentioned it earlier. You've been more than generous with your time here. I appreciate it. Thanks for taking the time. No, thanks for having me. It, it's it's so important to have this discussion in the very spaces where you do this terrific work. My thanks again to Dave Zirin for joining us here on the Orange and Brown Talk podcast to discuss Jim Brown. That's going to do it for this edition of the Orange and Brown Talk podcast. I'm Dan Lobby. Thanks for listening, everyone. <laughs>